Behind the bells and whistles of most success stories are private, transformational moments that ultimately changed the course of our lives. You Did That celebrates the black sheep who are often the first or only ones in their community to find success on their own terms in leadership, relationships, and life. Most of our guests have two things in common. They have achieved something pretty cool, and they often have done it without a role model or template to follow. These success stories are both singular and universal, and we hope that they inspire you to do your thing too. Linda, I'm so excited to have you. I know, because when I looked at the questions, I thought they're so juicy and exciting, and I have no direction where to take this. Yeah. Yeah. I understand because your work is so multifaceted and so layered. And like I said, I just shout from the hilltops, like how amazing I think your work is and how you are too. And I don't know how to answer the question of like, how, what, what does she, what, what doesn't she do? She kind of helps you lay the foundation for whatever you want to do. But the short version, I think, and you, you know, I want to hear from you too. I think you're just, to me, in my mind, you're a nervous system trauma guru who is just a complete wealth of information and all of the ways that that can manifest into how we move through the world. Because what is what affects the nervous system? Literally everything, like our generations before us, our upbringing, all those buzzwords that people use, attachment, all of that. But it's really just about being, your work is about safety to me. Mm, yeah. It took me a long time to actually recognize that that was the drive that was underneath all of my behaviors and that all of the needs I thought I was seeking to get met from the world was actually in service of trying to actually create safety for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the day that I realized that there was just like a abyss of compassion in recognizing all the ways in which I had been going sideways to try to get this basic need of safety met without actually acknowledging to myself that that was the fundamental thing that was ruptured for me in my own experience of myself and my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are so many ways in which we can then intentionally and consciously seek to co-create and collaborate with others to find that felt sense of safety and we don't have to do it with other people either and so there's this beautiful circuitous route called life that I don't know that I've just learned to trust in and believe in more and more but my my challenges around safety actually you know when I look at the research around what it is that builds resilience in young people it's a felt sense of confidence and competence Mm -hmm. it's something anything and in my younger years I found that through sex and drugs and school and then school fell by the wayside and then as a young adult I just couldn't figure out adulting and along the way I stumbled upon Alaska and Alaska just gave me the raw material with which to reckon with myself mm -hmm. you know the winters here are long <laughs> and they're long yeah it's kind yeah. of like there's nowhere to hide Yes. Yeah. And wherever you go, there you are. And, and, and running parallel to that, I was learning how to use power tools and hand tools and run chainsaw and survive in the wilderness without descending into survivalism, which I did do, and which is very common up here. And yet that's all part of that circuitous journey of coming back. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's such an interesting idea that you're describing going to this environment that I think you're saying it kind of kickstarted your search for safety or you had been looking for safety, but you were like, okay, maybe here's a place that I can cultivate this. And it's the line between working with the land, working with your hands, like growing the food that you eat and tipping over into survivalism, which is like kind of the opposite. It's the kind of this constant, you know, I don't think they would describe it that way, but you can say, you can see how the survivalism and the like that constant notion of like, oh, what if something happens? Like that's like kind of the opposite of safety. So how do you, I don't know, how do you know when you're going too far in one direction or not? The other parallel to, you know, the persistent fear that underpins survivalism is then conquer and control. And I would see myself vacillating back and forth between I'm I'm going to conquer this, I'm going to nail this, and that persistent fear and to be able to befriend that persistent fear while also befriending all of the strategies that I would turn to to avoid feeling the feelings that I do anything to not feel mm-hmm. was so painful and yet so growing and to have a period of my life where running parallel to you know the hunting and the fishing and the vegetables and building my own cabin with my partner mm-hmm you know, was meditation and yoga. And so to be able to develop that self-awareness, that metacognition of how you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. And if you can notice the way in which you do one thing, you may perhaps change the way in which you do that one thing. And that may perhaps change the way in which you do other things. And so that approach to life began to shift once I became starkly aware that I was living out of fear. And it was terrible and terrifying and yet so humbling humbling and liberating and then somewhere along the way sort of embarked in addiction recovery and then codependence recovery and adult children of people raised in dysfunctional families and then developing a context for myself and my life because I was a former child refugee and I didn't think that had anything to do with how my life was not turning out so great girl same I really call it, it was kind of like the last stone that I overturned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to, to delve into that and to do that, I think around the same time, I, I got the body keeps the score on the day that it came out. And it was profound for me to read about myself through vignettes and case studies and MRI scans and to also reconcile the fact that I couldn't remember any trauma in my lived experience and yet I had all the signs and symptoms and indications of someone who had a nervous system that was clearly operating from a place of unsafety. Do you feel like you had a moment, you said earlier, oh, I just recognized that I was living from a place of fear. That's where all my decisions were being made. That's how I was moving through my life. Do you remember a specific moment or experience or is it something that kind of dawned on you? I have a lot of times and my clients have a lot of times where it's not some light bulb moment that everybody's like kind of hoping for because it's like, could somebody just please tell me? But rather it's, you know, you're just going to look back one day and realize, oh, that's what I was doing and I'm not anymore. And I don't have a moment that I like stopped, but it's just kind of, you'll look back and realize, or, or did you have a moment? Well, in my personal situation, I was so anti-fear that I had this huge veneer and facade of false bravado 
And I used that to get through the world and to hide from the world and from myself, how terrified I was inside. And so learning about the nervous system and fight, flight, freeze and flop and being able to sit with that honestly, I don't know, it opened up something inside of me. And also in yoga teacher training, there was a yoga teacher by the name of Philip Urso and he talked about the four satisfactions of the ego, being right, being liked, being in control and being special. And I just sat there and went, fuck me, like that's me. That sounds so nice. (laughs) (laughs) I want all four of those things at all times. I was sitting there in a room with 45 people and, and, you know, hiding the fact that I was having such a huge response of um, seeing my life on a whiteboard. Yeah. Yeah. And then, re- you know, learning about the reactionary nature of the mind, learning how I would react to the whiff of the sniff of rejection, abandonment, shame, being judged. And I'd go to these four satisfactions of the ego to try to double down. (laughs) I think a lot of people can recognize either in in themselves or in people in their life, you know, the most bombastic, the most grandiose person, the toughest person is often, it's a cliche. We know that that person is a baby, a very vulnerable person. And I, in my own experience too, I can remember all of these sort of thrill seeking or adrenaline seeking and risky things um, can give me this sense of feeling powerful or feeling in control and like being looked up to like wow like that's such a scary thing I, I wish I could do something like that and to some extent that's those are good things to do I just wonder when you think of those kind of behaviors is it the intensity or the risk level that makes them you know what we might call like not great is it the frequency is it the motivation, what to you makes something like that not helpful? Well, I like to frame behaviors in terms of helping to make sense of them. Mm-hmm. And we do what we do until we know better or until mm-hmm. we know different or until we have a frame that helps us to make sense of ourselves. Because prior to that, you know, I just thought that that's how I am. And then learning about how my map for safety and unsafety has become distorted learning about how I confuse fear and excitement, learning about how maybe these risk-taking behaviours are actually a way of me trying to gain a sense of confidence and confidence over the feeling of fear Mm -hmm. by recreating risky scenarios that I then get to survive through, Mm -hmm. learning about how trauma as well as neurodivergence causes us to not feel anything unless it's very intense so I don't feel anything unless it's extremely painful or extremely pleasurable it's just a I don't feel anything in the gray zones in between and then learning also how addiction can also distort our sensory capacity to be able to feel accurately in the present moment just on a sensory level and then on top of that we add sensory processing type stuff where I'm either working through sensory overwhelm or I'm trying to feel alive and I'm trying to get sensory needs met. Yeah, I'm not, can you say more about that last one about I'm either trying to stay alive or trying to get these sensory needs met? Yes, like I'm living in sensory avoidance or living in sensory overwhelm or I'm living in sensory seeking. Yeah, and so if there's not enough sensory input, I can zone out. 
yeah, and that can be ADHD-ish and it can also be like a, a sensory, you know, sensory processing issue. And that can or may or may not be related to trauma and addiction as well. And so it's, 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 you know, it's. <laughs> yeah, your work, it's always so layered. And I really appreciate how many different experiences you take into consideration. It's such a deliberate way that you conceptualize things. But I like that. I like that even as a mantra, like, I know we didn't invent it, but we do what we do until we know better. And that's kind of a rule that I can use, people can use of, do I know better or am I doing the best that I can? And that can help you trust your decision-making and it can actually alert you to, oh, maybe I will learn better from this, this time that I'm doing it. And I appreciate you saying that rather than like, oh, whether it's right or wrong, good for you, bad for you, helpful or not helpful. I mean, everything is helping us do something. We just have to decide if it's something that we want to do. I, I, I know I've said that to myself, like, do I know better? And sometimes I really don't. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to stop punishing myself or second guessing or whatever. But I realize, like, I keep talking about your work because in my mind, you are a celebrity. And I know, I feel like I know 40% of the work that you do. <laughs> Am I like, just, this is so uncomfortable for you. But I do want to read for, um, I'm really glad that you shared this about your work and I, I just want people to kind of get a context for what work we're talking about mm -hmm. so Linda Tai you're a licensed social worker you're a trauma therapist who specializes in cutting edge brain and body based modalities for the healing of complex developmental trauma as an educator and consultant she is gifted with the capacity to contextualize synthesize and communicate complex and nuanced issues pertaining to trauma attachment and the nervous system including the impact of oppressive systems upon identity, mental health, and well-being. Linda is passionate about breaking the cycle of historical and intergenerational trauma at the individual and community levels, and deeply believes in the healing power of coming together in community to grieve. Born in Vietnam, raised in Australia, and now living in Alaska, Linda is a former child refugee who is not only redefining what it means to be Vietnamese, to be Australia, and to be a United Statesian. She is also redefining what it means to be wounded and whole and a healer. I mean, that's as close as we're going to get to encompassing all of the <laughs> multi-layered trauma work that you do. I recall seeing um, a graphic from a workshop that you did or some sort of teaching yeah I think it was like a workshop that you did or a training um, but it was like multiple Venn diagrams of refugee trauma child of refugee or child of alcoholism in the family I feel like there were maybe four or five different fields that overlap you, you're looking at me like you know exactly what I'm talking about. Can you refresh my memory? Because I just remember I was eating that thing up because that's kind of so much overlaps with the focus of my work too. And I was like, oh my gosh, people need to be talking about this. Like, can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. So it's a Venn diagram that I put out there. And outside of the Venn diagrams, you've got like two vertical panels that give the context for the landscape. Mm -hmm. Right, and so we have to talk about the landscape within which trauma happens, and that landscape is one of colonialism, war, genocide, abduction and enslavement, land theft, and the patriarchy mm -hmm. that gives rise 
to systems of unabashed racism, sexism, ableism, a neurotypicalism, cisgenderism, and heterosexism. And so this contextualizes the landscape. And then within that landscape, we have populations that have experienced forced displacement. So that's our Indigenous siblings. That's our abducted and enslaved descendants of the African diaspora. That's also Holocaust survivors. It's also people who have experienced needing to seek refuge as a result of their identity. So our queer siblings who are raised in parts of the world that are not supportive contextually, culturally to their identity. It's also people who seek refuge from cults or from rigid religious structures, Mm -hmm. religious refugees. And I also place within that context transracial and transnational adoptees. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the collective trauma, there's an impact on your fundamental sense of identity. So I don't think of COVID-19 as a collective trauma, even though it impacted a lot of us. I take Jack Saul's definition of collective trauma where it impacts your fundamental sense of self-identity, just like a childhood um, trauma survivor within the home, the pervasive ongoing threat to your physicality, to your sanity, where it's inescapable, it then impacts your sense of Mm self-organisation. Yeah. And so that's where, so that's that's one area of the, the Venn diagram. And then the next area of the Venn diagram is people who've experienced displacement, like like immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so within that, you've got, we've got immigrants, we've got expats. And I just want to say that expats are what we call white people mm-hmm. and immigrants are what we call black and brown people <laughs> who are you know, in a country that isn't their country of birth. We've also got people on work visas. We've got people who are on student visas. There's also satellite babies as well as parachute children. Mm. And so within that that area of displacement, we have challenges around assimilation, enculturation, acculturation, perhaps some homesickness, a sense of identity shift and losses that are unnameable. And then in the last circle, we have intergenerational trauma. And that's where I've drawn on the research around adult children of refugees and immigrants, um, adult children of Holocaust survivors, adult children of uh, veterans with PTSD and adult children of, I think I said Holocaust survivors, oh, adult children of alcoholics. And so within that, you've got the issues that we tend to hyper-focus in on within the colonised systems of of psychology education and social work education that we... No one knows. Yes, that we all know and love, right? Trauma, attachment, impaired bonding. Um, yeah. I appreciate you pointing that out because that that tiny sliver of people is what, you know, we consider what psychology focuses on and what gets so much attention. But all of these other groups of people and experiences, I also, it's what's standing out to me is you and I probably think and talk about trauma all the time, but for people who may not, just the uh, the differentiation between trauma that feels or actually is inescapable, how that fundamentally rewires you as a person versus, oh, here was this traumatic experience and 
you know, I, I carry it with me, but it's it's not continuing to happen or or I'm able to, it only happens in certain physical locations or something like that. But when the trauma is, as they say, the water that we swim in, that that is, there's gotta be another word for what that is because that is very different from these like incidents of trauma. Yes. I think Rosamund Medicum has great words for this. He says that PTSD is a misnomer. The post suggests that it's in the past. Mm -hmm. But for many of us with identities that are marginalised by society, the trauma is actually present and pervasive and systemic mm -hmm. and institutionalised and historical and intergenerational and ongoing. Mm -hmm. And to be able to separate the two in order to be able to work with pieces individually as well as holistically recognizing the interconnectedness of it all yeah i think it can be tempting to focus on one or another thing like kind of piece by piece mm -hmm. oh I, i'm gonna work on this and then i'll worry about all this other stuff and it just makes everything harder <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In my practice, I actually, with my clients, I prefer to work with what is salient. So whatever, what is emergent for you in this moment? Mm -hmm. What is emergent for you in this week? And let's, let's run with that. And whatever is emergent for you this week, also acknowledge all of the other things that go into it. It's not just, oh, I feel bad. I had a bad day because I got in a fight with somebody. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's where I really appreciate the uh, the contribution of people who think systemically. We often think of trauma as, sorry, with traditional psychology, we think through the lens of what's wrong with you. And trauma-informed psychology says what happened to you. And yet culturally-informed psychology invites us to consider what happened to your people however it is that you define your people and whomever it is that you you know, you identify. And then liberation psychology asks us to consider and what continues to happen to you and to your people. And that then invites in a recognition of the systems within which we live. And maybe perhaps as social workers, as counsellors, as psychologists, as people, we can begin to recognize that we live in a society that that offers more resources and resourcing to certain people than to others mm -hmm. yeah and that's where we need to recognize from a more holistic standpoint that trauma we tend to focus on it as being too sudden of something and without resources or resourcing without someone being there for you afterwards and yet trauma can also be too much or too little of something for too long without adequate time, space, permission, protection or resources or resourcing in order for the nervous system to return to homeostasis. And for some of us, that is a multi-generational yeah. uh, journey. Yeah. 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 Uh, really happy you outlined those different models of psychology. And I think that... If we just zoom out, if we just expand what counts as trauma or what can what can contribute to the this constellation of experiences that comes with trauma, I think so many more people would realize, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what that's coming from. And it's, you know, I always make the joke when people say, 
oh, that's not what bisexual means because that would make me bisexual. So that's not really what that is. And it's the same thing with these experiences. <laughs> you've heard that. You've heard me say that before. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's the same thing with these because we're not asking what happened to your people or what continues to happen to them. We're not, a- we're not even asking what happened to you. We're often saying just what's wrong with it? What's your problem? How can you solve your way out of this? <laughs> you know? So I think if people just had permission and the ability to acknowledge all of these other things, if you don't pay attention to it, it's not going to, nothing's going to happen with it. So I'm glad that you're sharing that. I wonder, when did you decide to kind of get into the mental health field professionally? Mm. You know, I was teaching meditation and yoga in an intensive outpatient program for addiction recovery. And along the way, I'm reading all these materials about addiction and then trauma. And then at some point, my supervisor says to me, have you ever thought about being a mental health counsellor? And I looked at him and said, no. (laughs) And about six weeks prior to that, my astrologer actually said to me, if you're thinking about going back to school, there's an opening that's happening in your chart next year that will be open for three years. And so as a result of my astrologer's planting of the seed and then the conversation that happened I then thought about it and as I started thinking about it I thought why not and so when I signed up to go to graduate school I signed up to get an education not to get a job and at the time, I was doing the hippie redneck thing, living on the fringes of society in Alaska, and I wasn't actually particularly interested in getting a job or having a career. And so it was one of those, I'm going to commit without committing and I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to learn about life. Let's see what happens. Yes, yes. And prior to going to graduate school, I knew I wanted to be a trauma therapist. And so running parallel to graduate school, I got training in brain spotting, internal family systems, sensory motor psychotherapy, uh, havening touch, flash technique. And so it was... You learned all that before going to graduate school? Uh, while it, Before and while in graduate school. Whoa, that must have really... <laughs> I just think about how little I knew when I went to graduate school. It would have been nice to have learned some stuff beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, you know, I had been like voraciously reading all of this material on addiction and trauma prior to graduate school. So I already knew why I wanted, you know, why I wanted to be there. And so I'm in all of these trainings while I'm in graduate school. And so I get connected into a network of therapists who are in private practice, have been in private practice for 20 or 30 years. I'm also going through all these trainings where I'm starting to begin to recognize something that I can't quite put my finger on but then after a few years I start asking people hey the assistants here do they get paid right how much like how does the structure of these training institutions work how come no one can answer my questions around does this modality how do you apply it to to adult children of refugees or how do you apply it to people from other cultural contexts And no one could answer my questions. And then I realized the inherent elitism that is built in within these training institutes, the amount of time that you volunteer for free in order to move up the training ladder to maybe one day become a senior trainer. And I also get that they need to make money and, 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 
Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there are folks who then aren't represented. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of held all that in mind as I went through these training programs, telling myself that one day I was going to do something different mm-hmm. and I was going to offer my own thing and just do things differently. And then I I was also studying with Bessel van der Kolk and Leisha Sky. And so that happened prior to graduate school. And so somewhere around, I think it was 2019, I asked to volunteer assist them with their private small group workshops mm-hmm. based on psychodrama structures. And having experienced the, I'll give you the fancy words and then I'll give you the not the the <laughs> non the non-psycho babble words. I I I somaticized the experience of an ideal mother. And that changed my life completely. Wow. I bet. Yeah. But in layman's that's why, terms, that's why you have such great skin, Linda. That's why <laughs> the love of an ideal mother will do wonders for your beauty routine. <laughs> I'm I don't want to minimize it. I'm sorry. But people don't realize how much, like you don't realize what you're missing until you experience it. Some people do, obviously, but. Yeah. And the amount of grief that poured out of me that I didn't realize was in there. And so I sort of held all of this because with all of these trainings, I actually went into these trainings to do my work on myself, Mm -hmm. which would get me looked down on by some of the other therapists in the space. But I didn't give a shit because. I'm from this small town in Alaska. Where am I going to get this help? And yeah, this that, that would cause them to look down on you. I thought that's what we all do. We all become therapists to like work out our own stuff, right? Does yeah, everybody but, not do that? But not in a training space. <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't believe that. Oh my gosh. It has been a while since I've experienced that. But, yeah. you know, actually that doesn't surprise me. There's always the the... You know my what word I don't like? Appropriate. You know what appropriate means? White people. When they're like, oh, this wouldn't be appropriate to do in a training. Anytime I hear that, I'm like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yes. It means that the white people aren't going to be, it's just too much for their nervous systems and they don't think that it's professional. <laughs> and they set the standards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I... I cottoned onto that real quick and I just, you know, there's this acronym that I grew up with in Australia and it's Dilly Gaff. Oh, yeah. Do I, yes, do I look like I give a fuck? <laughs> so having, I had no idea that being raised in Australia was such a resource until I got exposed to aspects of the United States. And, yeah, so I just brought my Australianness into that space rather than my, uh, my don't rock the boat Vietnamese-ness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we please talk about how would you sum up the difference between Australia and the states? Oh, there's a huge amount of difference. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. What stands out? We're not going to summarize it because there's so much, but a few things that come to mind. Okay, hierarchy. In the US, putting someone above you is considered a sign of respect. Sir, ma'am, doctor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In Australia, you're a fucking wanker if you insist on being called Dr. So-and-so. Wow. Yeah. If you insist on it, like no one's going to do it. Yeah. 
yeah, if you if that's how you sign your emails, if that's mm. and I remember <laughs> I I thought you were saying like if someone else would it would it also apply to the person who wants to call someone doctor or I guess maybe they wouldn't even want to. No, we don't do that in Australia. Wow, that's something I didn't even think of. We don't do sir, ma'am. We're just like Sarah. Sarah, that's yeah. your name. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's an egalitarianism that is built upon the rebuking of British colonialism in and the classism that that brought with it. Oh, interesting. I'm glad um, I asked. And we don't have guns. So if I had a dollar for every time I told someone to go fuck themselves in a nightclub. I would have so much money, but I don't because there's a fear, there's there isn't that fear of telling someone where to go. Whereas here in the states, because of the gun laws here, it's like, oh, am I allowed to actually tell you that you've crossed a boundary? Right. Yeah, yeah. There's so much repression. I feel it's very Victorian. It's very like not Victorian. It's very we don't say or do because what if. Mm-hmm which, you know, extrapolate that to whatever situation you want. Yes, there's the real like risk of violence, but also there's so much that's not said and not admitted and not acknowledged, particularly about the history of the country. And so we're just weighing even, you know, all the people who are quote at the top who benefit so much, they've got these skeletons in the closet that is just causing them to be, you know, the way that they are. And it happens at the individual level and at the societal level. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Australia is any better in terms of um, reconciliation with Indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there is, there, you know, it's, it's a country that isn't built on the back of abduction and enslavement right. and forced labour of a huge number of people. Yeah, astronomical amount of people. Mm-hmm. thinking about your very intertwined professional and personal journey learning about trauma and you are one of the greats studying with the greats <gasps> oh my gosh am I making you embarrassed yet for how much I'm like <laughs> guessing you up just just deal with it it's fine um what is one of your favorite things you've learned about yourself oh mm, that I'm lovable that I have a voice that it's okay for me to take up space in this world as I am, that exposure doesn't equal death. Yeah. You know, two weeks ago I spoke at Oxford University at the Sheldonian Theatre and it was for an international trauma conference and I happened to offer a keynote as well as a workshop. And, I mean, there were so many things going on for me. There was, you know, the imposter syndrome, there's the... You know, there's 10% BIPOC representation. There's why am I at this table? There's people telling me I got a seat at the table because I have a seat at the table. And to get up on that stage and to invite people to sing with me a song of resilience and hope and courage and then to speak Vietnamese, like my shitty Vietnamese on stage. where I'm naming who I am and naming my parents and naming where we've come from, brought in a sense of reclamation of a space that 
really is steeped in the pillaging and plundering and exploitation of humans and of the planet and built upon the wealth as a result of the brutalization of other humans. And yet there was something that happened when I spoke the language of my ancestors. I was able to name that, that we are in the heart of the dragon's lair of colonialism. And there were people in the audience that started cheering. And then I knew that I had a seat at this table and that, you know, the closer you get to the, to the lair, the more dangerous it is to name the thing that is right there. And yet to be able to do that has been a result of my own personal therapy as well as my relationships with the event organisers as well as with, you know, some of these trauma greats because otherwise I would just be shrinking back into that small fish, big pond why am I here? Let's just say something that's intelligent and pleasing rather than something that actually is the truth. Edgy, edgy and truthful. <laughs> wow, that must be that's an incredible story. And I can't even wrap my head around that. I feel sometimes we have those those like glasses from that old horror movie where we're seeing, you know, you're walking into this place at Oxford University and it's just covered with whiteness. Yes. And like brutality and it's a, you know, stolen everything. And everybody else is seeing like, wow, what, this is one of the oldest universities in the world and amazing. And like, aren't you so happy to be here? And I think that devil perception we have for so many reasons. I think people, I know I have, run from it or pretended it didn't exist or didn't want to deal with it or look the other way. And there is a period where you're trying to figure everything out and your place within it and things like, what right do I have? Or who am I to do X, Y, Z? And that's part of my work also working with the Afghan diaspora of, well, should we, be, should we even be saying anything? Like, you know, we're sitting in the lap of luxury here. And I think as you work through those things like you said in our own personal work um all of that kind of just like settles down and we figure out this is where I am and like we said I'm gonna until I know better this is what I'm gonna do yes. I, yeah go mm-hmm. ahead. I'm really appreciating oh, actually there's, there's two ways I can go with this you know I think in terms of whiteness we actually need to name it instead of Northern European or European or whiteness, actually name it as English. Oh. Right, name it as English, right? Which, which feels really scary. Like it feels so scary. But that is so much of the basis of what has happened here in the United States. You know, after I went to Oxford, I then went to Switzerland and I speak some French. So I get off the train in Geneva and I'm speaking bad French and everyone's vibing with me. But in my nervous system, I'm waiting for people to be racist towards me because I don't speak their language perfectly because that's what I've seen and experienced in parts of the English speaking world, right? In most of the English speaking world. And then I'm noticing that people are really friendly and lovely at my French. And then we go to you know, I hike the Swiss Alps. I'm in a room where no one is speaking English. It's Germans and French and Swedes and Italians and everyone's brown because these people go brown in the summer. 
they don't go white, red, white, red. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, I'm taking all of this in. <laughs> and then we go to Bern and Bern is a German speaking part of Switzerland. And I don't speak Swiss German. So I just speak French with a bit of English. And people are just fine with that. And I'm speaking in French and they're speaking back to me in Swiss German. And then, you know, and we're just going back and forth like this and it's fine. And I'm beginning to recognize that there is a, an ability to morph in parts of Europe where there aren't distinctions between my language and your language and my border and your border and languages can move between borders. And yet there's something about the English speaking world that is very much racist towards people who don't speak English perfectly. And it was neat for me to travel, you know, one part of Europe and to experience experience something new and different in that regard. You know, I saw a group of people, young people speaking in French, and then more people would join the group. And then at some point, the group switched over to speaking Swiss German because that was what was comfortable for the group but there was this unspoken thing that went back and forth that didn't need to be named or negotiated like there wasn't a power differential as a result of the language that I can speak or the languages that I can speak and the ones that you can't yeah that's so interesting to point out because there is obviously within within borders within cultures you know, every country has their own flavor of racism. <laughs> yes. But the, what transcends that is like the use of English and what comes with that. And that's very, very interesting. I'm glad you said that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. You were like, there's parts of Europe that are not like this. And I'm like, it sounds like it's only Switzerland, but I think <laughs> it may only be Switzerland. Like, I'm just... It's basically that only. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some bordering countries, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I think it's like the non, it's, yeah, maybe it's the non-English speaking. Yes. Yes. And it's it's good to have new experiences and it's good to have my own assumptions and what I already know or think I know about race and identity be challenged as a result of, you know, the people that I'm interacting with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in so many ways, you know, being Asian is fraught because of the history of colonisation of of Asia. And then we add on top of that the learning and the conditioning around white proximity as a survival strategy and the ways in which I have colluded with the model minority myth as a way of separating myself from other black and brown bodies and the ways in which Asians have you know as a as a group in general have colluded with that mm-hmm. yeah and, and it just further fractures us from ourselves yes 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 and as a I was a refugee into Australia and I was an immigrant into the United States and with privilege of being able to speak English and I know from my own experience, that I did not have to learn about the history of Indigenous genocide or the history of Black abduction and enslavement. It just isn't what you get taught as an immigrant Mm -hmm. coming. You do get taught that your body is considered higher up on the ladder than these other bodies. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so much of what we learn is implicit or through what doesn't get said. You know, I haven't sat for my citizenship exam because I have the privilege of not needing US citizenship and framing it through a taxation lens rather than from a safety lens. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm fully, part of me doesn't want to, even consider the idea of it because the questions that are asked in terms of studying for the exam, I don't want to, I don't want to indoctrinate myself even further. Gosh, I can't even imagine. I feel like you would open the little booklet and just immediately know that's unbelievable to think about. Girl, yeah. don't do it. If you don't need to do it, then just don't do it. No, no, but it's um... <laughs> Farm your farm your food, like have your harvest, enjoy the Alaskan sun, love it. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So this is one question that I ask everybody before we wrap up. Um, and I want to ask it to you now, which is what would your younger self think if they saw you now? No fucking why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My younger self was so depressed and suicidal and pessimistic and had so not few role models but like no role models mm-hmm. yeah how does it feel to be a role model to others are you gonna make me cry <laughs> well it's it's only fitting because I've been to your trainings and you make us cry so yeah it's um it's really touching and really humbling whenever I receive emails or messages from people who tell me that they're so glad that I'm here and that there's an, there's an Asian person that's leading a training. Yeah. 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 Or at Oxford, the few people of color who were there who just came running up to me afterwards, crying and just expressing gratitude. Like it's, that's humbling. Mm-hmm. Well, you are a role model to so many, myself included, and I promise I won't make you cry again for a whole year. <laughs> I'll try. I'll do my best. <laughs> and you people... know, Sarah, I have to let you know, you're one of my role models. I am for you. How come? Your bad assery, putting yourself out there in the world creating the type of practice that you've created, putting a podcast out in the world that is an extension of you, that voices, that people who need to hear voices that are the voices that you want to hear gravitate to, mm-hmm. that you're being the person that you needed back there, back then and creating based mm-hmm. upon that. Oh, dude, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see that. Oh my gosh. Every time someone, every time I think of what my younger self would think seeing me it's it there is a huge no fucking way factor but there's also a little bit of like yeah that seems exactly right (laughs) it depends on how young we're talking you know yeah well I'm really appreciative of your time and all that you do in the world if people want to learn more about your trainings or your workshops or just your work in general where can they learn about it I have a website. It's www.linda-tai, L-I-N-D-A-T-H-A-I.com. I put a newsletter. It comes out once a month. I don't do the newsletter thing where I tell you how good I am and buy my stuff. I just share about my world and what I'm learning and mm-hmm. unlearning with you. 
Uh, I've got courses on that website as well. And you can also friend me on Facebook. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the rest of social media. So for now, it's Facebook. It's funny. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Linda, and all of your information will be in the show notes here. And hopefully um, we can spread the word and let people know about all the work you're doing. Thank, thank you, Linda. You. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to this episode of You Did That. My name is Sarah Stanizai, and you can learn more about all our amazing guests and the You Did That community by going to my website at www.sarahstanizai.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review. And thank you to the woman-owned business, All Out Virtual, for producing this episode. You Did That is brought to you by Sarah Stanizai, your business and mental health coach supporting unlikely entrepreneurs and creating value-led businesses with heart over hustle. Learn more at sarahstanizai.com.